الجزيرة بودكاست. Hey, it's Malika. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to The Take and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think. When Russia began its war in Ukraine, there were estimates that it was spending $900 million a day. Almost a year later, the fighting has only intensified, and Moscow is sending even more to the front lines. Russian President Vladimir Putin just escalated his invasion of Ukraine in a very big way, calling up 300,000 military reservists. And despite a torrent of international sanctions aimed at cutting off its resources, a former Moscow insider says there's likely no end in sight. I cannot imagine the situation when Putin has no funds to finance the war. So how are these mounting costs of war being felt inside of Russia today? And what economic and human consequences could this conflict bring Russians in the long term? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Germany and the U.S. recently announced they're providing Ukraine with tanks, a major moment in the military conflict, which could allow Ukrainian forces to retake more territory. The German government confirms it will send its Leopard battle tanks to Ukraine to aid in the war against Russia. The decision marking a coordinated move, Biden says, with European allies to equip Ukraine with modern battle tanks. But for the past year, Ukraine's allies have also been waging an economic campaign against Russia. First, to deter an invasion, then to limit Moscow's ability to fight. Here's Lithuania's foreign minister issuing a warning in January last year before Vladimir Putin announced his so-called special military operation. We need to really be true to our words when we say that the sanctions will be unbearable. They have to be unbearable, and that's the only uh, deterrent. If they are bearable... And it's not a deterrent. The United States has blacklisted hundreds of individuals, companies, institutions, and banks tied to the Kremlin. The EU has approved nine packages of sanctions since February. But have all of those measures really made life unbearable inside Russia? The craziest thing is the fact that nothing really has changed. Polina Ivanova is a Russian reporter for the Financial Times. I have been based in Moscow and covering Russia for the past five or six years. And uh, since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I've been based between Berlin, London, and um, with trips to Moscow. So the last time you were in Russia, what did you notice about daily life? Let's take it down to the basics of someone wants to go shopping in Moscow. What is actually different? Is there a difference? I mean, not so much, right? If you go to a supermarket, especially something that's catering to the kind of middle-class consumer in Moscow, kind of looks the same as it always did. You still have the same foreign foods. You can get the same European wines. You would notice a change in the price tag. The inflation has been significant and people are feeling that. But in general, there's nothing really palpable. But if you were then to go from that supermarket and walk down the road or whatever to the shopping mall, you might start noticing that some of the brands that you were used to have shut down. 
A mass exodus of major international companies. A McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Starbucks suspending operations in Russia. Some have by now, in fact, been replaced with local equivalents. So they've been bought out. McDonald's is now called Tasty and Full Stop. Have you been? I have. It's is it tasty or is it very similar? Mm, I'd say it's not similar. It's not quite up to par. But I guess it's all about personal taste. Some people have said that it's just the same as always. So it's not a huge change for the consumer, I think, so far. And it's also one that is very specific to Moscow. So I think that's really important to remember across the rest of the country. In most cities across Russia, across its 11 time zones, you would not be seeing those Western brands anyway. They weren't there before and they're not there anymore. While there haven't been any major shortages or an economic crisis, Polina says there have been smaller changes, which for her brought back memories. Back when I was a child and living outside of Russia, and every time we would go home to see friends and family, we would be asked to bring things from abroad, you know, even basics, hair dryers, whatever, different kind of products. And you would get these requests because this sort of thing wasn't accessible in Russia. It was going through a serious economic crisis. It had only just opened up trade with the world after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But with the oil boom in the 2000s, Polina says her family hadn't gotten requests for years. Now, this is the first time on my trip back in November, it was the first time that I was again asked by relatives, oh, can you get this thing or that thing? For example, it'll be like a cleaning product. And that product is a Western brand that they're used to. It doesn't mean that that type of cleaning product doesn't exist in Russia, just that high quality Western brand doesn't exist. I think it's really representative of what's happening to the economy in general, because what we're not seeing from sanctions is some sort of collapse. What you are seeing is a slow degradation of the quality of different goods across a range of sectors. And okay, when that's consumer goods, maybe that doesn't matter so much. But when it's in industry and suddenly the kind of equipment that you're using is not as good as it used to be and not as efficient, then that has an effect all the way down the chain. Somebody else who's seen this up and down over the decades firsthand is Sergei Alexashenko, who you heard from at the top of the show. He's worked inside the financial system at pretty high levels since before Russia was Russia. You see, I'm old enough and I remember what does it mean the Soviet Union. And I even got a chance to work a year and a half in the government. Now, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I became the deputy minister of finance of Russia in charge of the budget, taxation, and the macroeconomic policy. And after that, I was nominated as the first deputy governor of the central bank. Sergei left Russia for political reasons in 2013, but not before witnessing the country's rise as a global economic power. As Polina mentioned, the 2000s oil boom was a turning point for Russia. It not only lifted people into the middle class, but also built up the country's foreign currency reserves to about $600 billion. That huge sum became President Putin's war chest when he launched the invasion. To cut off that war chest, Western countries have taken aim at its main source of revenue, Russia's oil and gas sectors. The U.S. was quick to act, while the EU, which depended on Russia for 40% of its gas supplies, needed longer negotiations before announcing it would cut gas imports by two-thirds within a year. 
We have enormously diversified away from Russian fossil fuels, away from Russian gas supplies, towards other reliable, trustworthy suppliers. Just recently came an even bolder move. Western allies have agreed to put a cap on the price of Russian oil. The G7 group of nations, as well as Australia and the European Union, have decided that no country should pay more than $60 a barrel. The oil ban and price cap have been touted as game changers in the war. Energy sales totaled $168 billion last year and accounted for 40% of Russia's budget. The West is targeting Russia's revenues at a time when Moscow is planning a huge increase in spending on the war. Next year, more than $150 billion, or a third of the total budget, is earmarked for military and security expenses. But Sergei isn't convinced stopping energy exports is anywhere near enough to stop the fighting, because it's still only one source of the Russian budget. I do not understand the idea to stop the war by financial sanctions. The federal budget uses all the revenues available from production of oil, from export of oil, and from uh, value-added tax, and from personal income tax, and from profit tax, and so on and so far. So you cannot stop financing the war by the dictator if he's controlling all branches of the government, if he controls the central bank. It's impossible. Look on North Korea, on Iran, on Venezuela, on Cuba, under very severe sanctions for many years, including South Africa in 1980s, 1990s, no sanctions could shut down the economy. And if its dictatorship is running the war, it will have funds for the war. Instead, education, healthcare, and infrastructure have been slashed in the budget. And Sergei says even pensions could be sacrificed to continue funding Putin's war. But he says even that might not be enough to cut into Putin's support. We should not forget that the level of private consumption reached in 2012-2013 was the highest in the whole Russian history. So the Russian people never lived as good as they lived under Putin. So that's one of the reasons uh, supporting Putin and Putin's policy. And this does not change the political mood or even economic mood of Russian people. And Polina believes Putin's main calculation is his own role in history. There's this sense of, from Putin of a kind of rebalancing after the humiliation of defeat in the Cold War. And that is not something that you measure in terms of budgets or you measure in terms of oil and gas revenues or even necessarily of public opinion polls. This is being driven by a different kind of motive. And as a result, when people talk about how long can Russia carry on funding the war, well, I think... A lot of the time, people underestimate the government's capacity to keep making people suffer for this cause. You know, there is a different logic at play as well. After the break, we'll look at the one major change that has forced people inside Russia to reconsider the costs of war. And it wasn't caused by outside sanctions, but by a decision from the Russian government. If you need in-depth analysis of news and current affairs in one of the world's most misunderstood and complicated regions, join me, Sami Zaydan, every Thursday on Al Jazeera's Essential Middle East podcast. In the 
months since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, international sanctions have set back Russia's growth, but not as much as expected. So I asked Financial Times reporter Polina Ivanova what cost Russians have noticed the most. So if not sanctions, what has had the biggest impact or the biggest disruption to Russian life since the start of the war? So really, it's been mobilization. September 21st last year was when Putin announced that there would be a limited but wide-ranging conscription for the armed forces for Ukraine. That mobilization, the first since World War II, is aimed at those with previous military experience to reinforce the Russian military in Ukraine. And September 21st for many Russians is a date that is as much of a kind of shock as the 24th of February, which was the start of the invasion of Ukraine, because before then, the war existed in a kind of distant way. It was happening, admittedly, in the neighboring country. But, you know, there's something that was kind of playing out on TV for a lot of people or in their phones. And some people chose to pay attention and some people chose not to. And you could just switch off your phone or switch off the TV. And even on the TV, it was presented to you in this very kind of propaganda way. So September 21st was the date where the war really came into people's homes and they started being genuinely frightened that someone could be mobilized in their families or of where this all was going in general. And since then, there have also been some like Ukrainian, claimed as Ukrainian attacks within Russia and different Russian air bases, things like that, which are already pretty deep into the country. So it's like a shift in terms of how much the war is coming to Russians now. You know, after the September 21st, we saw thousands of people fleeing all at once within days. Lines of people and vehicles are being seen at Russia's border checkpoints. These images from satellites where you could see queues of Russians standing along these roads leading to the Kazakh border or the Georgian border as people were trying to leave the country, fearing that they would be conscripted to the army. These were very dramatic scenes, and that was a major shift for people in the country. What have been some of the knock-on effects of the mobilization? Because I know it must trickle into other parts of Russian life. Some of them are brain drain, right? So I actually went to Kazakhstan and... uh, were standing basically on the border watching as young people, young Russians were crossing. Some had spent four or five days sleeping out rough because they were just queuing to try and cross. They were kind of young hipsters. One of them was carrying a yoga mat because that's what you do as a hipster when you suddenly have to flee your country. And a lot of them were IT workers, programmers, computer engineers. And that's the brain drain that we're talking about, especially for IT workers, because they are able to quite easily relocate. Some of those people might start coming back when the situation stabilizes, but that's just one of the ways in which this will affect the country going forward. And that's in worker shortages. But what about demographics? Who are the people that are leaving? Uh, The people who are leaving are young, productive labor force, and they're leaving at exactly when Russian demography was starting to get back to a kind of healthy state. The 90s, that was a major collapse in Russian demographics. Population shrank, birth rates absolutely plummeted, and that was all due to this kind of unstable period and poor economy. 
And then gradually things started to recover. But I remember going to a conference a few years ago where Putin was there and someone asked Putin a question. What's the one thing that keeps you up at night? What's the one thing that worries you the most? And Putin, without really stopping to think, said demography. Russia has reported a record decline of more than one million people. Russia's rising aging population and short life expectancy have also contributed to this sharp population decline. And this is something that the government had clearly been trying to stimulate. And so launching a war at that particular moment, a war that makes a lot of people flee the country, especially young, productive men, a war that also sends hundreds of thousands of men to the front line, injuring and killing many of them, a war that depresses demographics in general. People do not tend to, you know, have as many children when they don't see stability in their future. So that's another kind of big impact that this war will have on Russia going forward. So even if sanctions don't stop Russia from funding its offensive next year, or even the next several years, these long-term costs of the war will be hard for Russia to overcome. This is something that will have ramifications for Russia for years and years to come. You can see this if you think about kind of high tech, for example. Okay, maybe it doesn't really damage the economy immediately if Russia isn't able to import top-end microchips produced in Taiwan anymore, the most cutting-edge microchips. Maybe that doesn't have an immediate impact, but if you think about what that means in terms of it remaining a society that is able to produce cutting-edge technology as the rest of the world develops and is accessing those markets, then that's one of the areas where we can just see the potential for it to start lagging behind in lots of areas, which could be really critical in future. You know, as new kind of forms of energy developers, you know, scientific breakthroughs in AI and all sorts of areas where being part of a global conversation and being part of a global economy makes all the difference and Russia will not be participating in that in the same way. Though, of course, it's still in dialogue and, in, and trading with China, with India, with Turkey and other parts of the world and is continuing to import things through a sort of half black market kind of schemes. But um, yeah, that's obviously not the same thing as being kind of embedded in the global system. That isolation and exclusion from the global system has brought back painful memories for Sergei. And he remembers the whiplash from opening up economic markets after the end of the Soviet Union. Russia paid enormous price for its transformation. And it makes me unhappy because I see how Putin's government is destroying step by step all what we have done in the beginning of the 90s. Let's imagine that 10, 20 years from now, Russia decides to reintegrate to the world. And that means that 20 years from now, Russia will need to pay the second time the same price, or maybe the higher price, to solve the same problems that we solved 30 years ago. So I feel it's like intentional destruction of the modern Russia, so moving Russia back to quasi-Soviet type of the society, quasi-Soviet type of the economy. It's not uh, only financial, it's not only economic, it's social price as well. When you see that majority of population support the war and they don't want to blame Putin for dozens or hundreds of thousands of wounded and killed, that something bad is going in the people's brain. That, I would say, will be even higher price. 
that will be even higher price because the society is changing very fast and not in the way we would like to see. Sergei says since Russia is willing to keep spending at seemingly any cost, Ukraine's allies must also keep sending military aid to the ground. Let's be honest. The war could be ended only if Ukrainian army will win. Only if Ukrainian army will receive enough of weapons to defeat Russian invasion. So that's the only one good scenario for the world, for Ukraine, for Russia. No sanctions, no political pressure on Putin may change the situation. That's the only one phrase that can help us. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Miranda Lynn with Chloe K. Lee, Nagin Oliay, Amy Walters, Ashish Mahotra, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is The Take sound designer. Tim St. Clair mixed this episode. Aya El-Milek and Adam Abugad are our engagement producers. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back 